Our scripture reading this morning is from James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. A lawyer, a doctor, and a preacher went deer hunting. Before they had even gotten to the deer stand, they saw a ten-point buck step into the clearing. All three immediately and simultaneously shouldered their weapons and fired. The deer dropped where it stood. They began immediately to discuss, and by discuss I mean argue, about who it was that shot the deer, and therefore was going to be able to count that as a harvest. They were coming to no real conclusions when a game warden appeared on the scene and, they just, and they, he asked them immediately why they were arguing and they told him about the situation and the conundrum. He said, oh, I can tell you who shot this deer. He squatted down and he looked at the deer and examined it for about five seconds. He said it was a preacher that shot the deer. They said, how in the world could you tell that in, in such a short period of time? He said, oh, that's easy. The round went in one ear and out the other. I tell you that this morning because I really, really hope that this lesson in particular will not go in one ear and out the other. And I also want to give you a reading assignment. If you will, spend some time this afternoon and finish reading. I didn't ask uh, uh, Gerald to read the entirety of the text because it's the first 12 verses of James chapter 3. But uh, Ben just got through teaching that particular group of paragraphs last Sunday morning, and it's a fascinating study, and it's always an important study. But I I would like for you to get the fuller context. But verses 1 and 2 really establish the premise for us. And I want to assure you that the illustration that I'm about to share with you is not intended or designed to discourage you, but to simply point out the fact that every one of us, and I mean everyone, has to fight a battle in order to control the tongue. James says that one of the things that every Christian has in common is that we struggle to control our tongue. That was true 2,000 years ago when nothing has really changed in the intervening years. So here's the illustration. A fellow believer who was just getting into the Christian publishing business went to a conference and it was intended to be designed for other people who aspired also to be Christian writers. And while he was there, he was honored to be invited to lunch by a big name. And by a big name, I mean this, this guy was an author, a preacher, a church leader. He was a well-known man and he was a godly man. And the story that I'm about to share is not intended to in any way contradict any of those descriptions. But anyway, the younger guy and this big-name preacher then went out to lunch. And, and once the pleasantries were out of the way, they began talking some about the book business because that was why they were there. But then immediately, the older man, the big-name preacher, began to, to badmouth and criticize and gossip about and harpoon all of his contemporaries, all of those other aspiring writers and those who, in fact, had been published 
This one, he said, wasn't bright. This one was too harsh. This one, he claimed, had written the, se- the same book several times. And this one didn't study enough. And this one was too deep in his studies. And he wrote above the heads of his audience. And he went on and on with those kinds of criticisms. Well, Jerry, the younger guy, said it was a classic case of a man who was not satisfied to be numbered among the very best of his field. Apparently, this fellow felt like he had to rip others in order to elevate himself. And it was a shattering experience, as you can imagine, for the younger preacher, especially to be sitting at a table with someone that he had long respected. Well, the older guy was so busy running down others that he didn't, he didn't notice that, that Jerry had lost his interest both in eating and in conversation, which Jerry adds are the two things I do really well. He didn't know what to make of it. He knew the guy had had some physical ailments recently, and maybe that was what was contributing to his negative disposition. The best he could do was to chalk it up to a spiritual blind spot on this fellow's part. He said, we all have them, and yet God still uses and blesses us. And so Jerry said, there was no sense in expecting this man to be perfect either. But the story doesn't end there, though. It wasn't long after that lunch that they had together that Jerry heard this man speaking on a lectureship program, and and the topic that had been assigned to him was, of all things, the use of the tongue from James chapter 3. And here are some of the actual texts that he used. James 1, 26, if anyone among you thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. James wants us to know, even though we may have our act together in every other area of our Christian walk, if we're not controlling our tongue, then we have invalidated the influence, the good influence that we will have on others. And another one that he used was James 3, 5, and 6, just a few verses down from the passage that Gerald read a moment ago, where James says, even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest, a little fire kindles. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire by hell itself. And then the last one he used was in the same chapter, this time verse 8. But no man can tame the tongue. It is an unruly evil full of deadly poison. All of that ought to catch our attention. Well, you can imagine the impact that those verses had on Jerry after he he had just heard this this fellow violate pretty much every one of them when they shared the the dinner that day. And he said such things, the, the preacher said such things as we must not use our tongues to injure one another. We must not gossip. We must not backbite. Those are all things that are not characteristic of God's people. Jerry, listen to all of that. Knowing what this man had said about other writers and other Christians. And he was too young and too intimidated to ever call him on it. I mean, he wouldn't know what to have said. Who was he to correct such a great man was kind of his thinking. And after all, Jerry had been just as guilty, especially among his own family and friends. And that raises a very important question that I want us to think about for just a few minutes this morning. And that is, when is talking about someone appropriate? When is that okay? And before you immediately answer, well, never, think it through. There are some occasions in which that is absolutely necessary. Isn't that one of the, is it when when we proceed it by asking for prayer for someone? 
Isn't that one of the greatest gossip justifiers that's ever been around? You know what I'm talking about. We say, well, we, we really need to pray for her because I understand that she and her husband are having real marital problems due to her infidelity. And the person that you're talking to says, well, I want to pray intelligently, so tell me more. And then all of a sudden, guess what? Both of you have stepped into a spiritual rabbit hole. No, gossip is not legitimized by preceding it by we really need to pray for this person and let me tell you all the details about why we need to do that. That won't work. But then there are times when a board or someone superiors down at work must talk about a person to professionally evaluate personnel. That's a part of the job description. I think we all understand that. But even then, when you have been trying to make it a practice to not talk about people when they're not there to defend themselves, even that done on a professional level can make you feel a bit uncomfortable. Or or when it was done for the protection of others or for the integrity of a ministry, particular persons simply must be discussed. And I think we understand that, and, and certainly James understood that when he wrote the words of our text. But I believe that even then, there needs to be some guidelines. There needs some be, to, to be some boundaries about what we say and how we say it about a person when we're discussing that person. For example, nothing, nothing should be said that could just as easily not be said. Does, does that make sense? Nothing need, needs to be said that could just as easily go unsaid. If details must be known, then they should be shared in humility and in full confidentiality. Or, or, or how about this one? How about gossiping within the family? Isn't that fair game? Doesn't there, isn't there a different set of rules that apply when we're talking about or two members of our own family? After all, we trust each other. We can keep confidences, and who else will ever know? And so it goes. We immediately began talking about, do you know what he did? Do you know what he said? Do you know where he's going, where they saw him last night, and what happened to him? You see, that is very, very dangerous talk. No wonder, James says, that the tongue is an unruly member full of deadly poison. Because it's so easy in all of these contexts of life, in all of these situations, to immediately rationalize and to begin to justify, I'm talking about this person with their best interest in mind. Yeah, right. So what's wrong with gossip? And why does James, in a very short book, spend so much time talking about how Christians need to control our tongue? How, how we speak to and about people. Why is that such an important, vital issue? In today's time, folks, especially with the proliferation of social media, it, it's be, seen by a lot of people as just a part of the game of life. And, and if you can't handle what people say about you, then you need to cancel all of your accounts, is the attitude that a lot of people have about the use of the tongue. And, and maybe that might be good advice to just cancel our accounts. But what I'm saying is, in light of our text, our day and time is not the time to be forgetting what God has said on this matter. God really wants us to be impressed with how important this is. And one of the reasons is very simple but very profound. We can destroy someone's life by way, the way we use our tongues. We can destroy someone's reputation. And you can do that in a five-second period. You can say something about someone that can never be retracted and it can never be remedied. 
And so James wants us to know and Jesus wants us to know how important it is that God's people, as we walk in this world as representatives and ambassadors for Jesus Christ, that we're so very careful about how we speak, how we use this wonderful gift of communication. And we'll come back to this in just a moment. But this is the time when when even closer attention and more serious thought needs to be given to this vital subject because people are literally dying over what others have said about them. Folks, if you have not seen the skyrocketing suicide rate by those who have been cyberbullied, you need to check it out because it is a sobering piece of information. Why does does James and and Jesus spend so much time urging us as God's people to control our tongues when when talking about other people is considered by many to be so much fun? Well, in my judgment, gossip accomplishes four things. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time on any of these, but I, I want to mention these because all of them are bad. The first thing that gossip does is it hurts the reputation of the person being spoken about. And that ought to be quite obvious. When I'm criticizing and tearing someone down and and trying to destroy their reputation, I should not be surprised when that happens. And so it hurts the reputation of the person that is being gossiped about. But also it affects the impression of that person by the one who's hearing the gossip. The person who's on the receiving end said, well, I didn't know that. And all of a sudden, you've destroyed the image of someone in their mind. But thirdly, it lowers the reputation of the teller of the gossip, which is, of course, precisely the opposite of what they wanted to accomplish. And, and I don't know if you feel the same way as I do about that. But when I hear somebody gossip about somebody else, I don't think less of the person being gossiped about. I think less of the person who's doing the gossiping. But here's a fourth and perhaps the most important problem with the whole subject of gossiping and talking about people. This, I, I would put this at the very top. It violates scripture. It violates what God has so clearly said on this subject. So, so let me be clear at, at this point in this discussion. Gossip is not necessarily made up of falsehoods. I think that's one of the ways that we sometimes rationalize and justify gossip. Well, what I'm, what I'm telling about this person is absolutely true because that's one of the great dangers here. Thinking that as long as what I'm saying about a person is true, then it's okay to tell it. No, no. You need to, you need to go back and appreciate what gossip really is biblically defined. In fact, if gossip, think of it like this. If gossip is untrue, it's probably less harmful to the target than true stories would be. If a rumor is false, usually time will reveal it. If gossip is true, time will reveal that too. Don't defend gossip by saying that you know what you're about to tell is is fact. It's still damaging information about a person that doesn't need to be shared unless it's it's done for someone's protection. And, And here's what I mean by that. Maybe if your best friend says that her daughter has been befriended by an adult that you know has a background of sex offenses, then clearly it would be your duty to inform your friend so that she can protect her daughter. I think we're all in tacit agreement on that point. However, it would not be your right or responsibility to tell everybody in town about that. 
You see, the ability to keep confidences needs to be violated only once to ruin someone's reputation. Let's say that you told the one person that you could trust your deepest, darkest secret, and now everybody in town knows about it. It was a secret. And that means everybody found out about it, probably one person at a time, but each one told one, and no one expected anyone to tell anyone else, and now it's common knowledge. And you're on the receiving end of that, and now you began to feel, I know how damaging that can be, and how that the use of the tongue needs to be guarded so very carefully. It's been said that the best secrets can be kept between two people if one of those persons is dead. And it's also been said that truth and time walk hand in hand. So untruths about you in all likelihood will eventually be exposed. But but what are we going to do in the meantime about this insidious destructive practice of gossip, of talking critically about people and tearing down reputations? I heard about an older woman who was constantly bothered by her next door neighbor who always came over, rang her doorbell, and immediately the neighbor that she was visiting knew that she was there to gossip because that's all she did. And so she finally figured out a way to be able to to kind of put a stop to that. And this sweet Christian woman would always have her vacuum cleaner parked nearby. And so when the woman started in on her gossip tirade, she would go over and she would begin vacuuming, I might add, at 95 decibels. And finally, the lady got the point and walked, stormed off, actually. But uh, if you have to do something like that, folks, do it. And And then rinse and repeat. You know what I'm talking about. I've seen my father quietly walk away from dirty jokes and gossip filled conversations. One guy I heard about responds to any bad comment about someone was something good. Like, that guy's a real creep, can be said. And he says, well, he sure seems like a good family man. I've always liked him. Maybe that's the approach that we need to have. Try to find something good that was just said about someone who said something bad. He, he even turns compliments around. One man heard about a friend who, who had to take a cut in his pay and in his position after some mid-management cutbacks, and and the man said, well, you know, I bet he's thrilled just to have any income at all right now, and and this will be a good break for him while he gets back on his feet. I also heard about a guy who is a a believer, and and as a result of his his walk in Christ, he, he neither smokes nor drinks. But one day he went to lunch with some co-workers, and many of them did smoke and drink. And they, think, now they knew where Jim stood on, on that issue, and, and they never tried to get him to do the same as they were doing, especially at you know, a business luncheon. But, but one day, one of the guys who had gone to lunch began acting kind of funny around Jim. And he took his ashtray and he put it, this is back in when you could have ashtrays on tables in restaurants, but he took his ashtray and he put it on the other side of the table. He said, now, I, I wouldn't want you to have to, 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 to breathe any of my smoke. And, you know, and he said it in a kind of snarky sort of way. Well, Jim had never said anything about the guy smoking and, and, he, and he wouldn't have. That wasn't just his nature. And, and so when the guy moved his ashtray, Jim kind of smiled at him as if, you know, he was in on the joke. But the problem was the guy didn't smile back. And then the next day, the man said something else about his smoking in front of Jim. And he said, I suppose you want to slap my hand if I light up again. And Jim looked at him and said, what in the world are you talking about? And the guy said, oh, we all know what you said to Pam. Well, Pam was the receptionist, and and Jim hadn't had 
three conversations with, with Pam in the last month except to ask about her family. And he had never said anything about her smoking or even looked askance at her because of it. And it took him several days to pull from his friend what it was he was supposed to have said to Pam. She had fabricated a running debate that she and Jim were supposed to be having about her smoking and, and how that Jim would supposedly slap her hand lightly every time he saw her with a cigarette and he would then move the ashtray, he would cough loudly, he would make a joke and then ask her how she could put those filthy things in her mouth. This friend that was telling Jim about all of this, we'll call him Bob, finally came to, because that's his name, finally came to believe that, that Jim would not have done such a thing. But Bob had no idea that the woman had been spreading these rumors about Jim, making, making old Jim look like a self-righteous snob. So Jim said to Bob, Bob, have you ever known me to be like that? Have you ever known me to treat people or to say something about someone like that ever? And Bob admitted that he had not. Well, Jim even wondered if it could have been a case of mistaken identity. But then he began thinking about it. There's only a dozen of us that work in the office and nobody looks like me. So where was you getting this? And how long had everyone else been thinking what a clod that Jim was? And the answer was months. So finally, Jim knew he had to confront Pam. Well, someone must have tipped her off because she quit mid-afternoon one day, and he was unable to track her down even by phone. Jim managed to reach her father and told him that the father told Jim that he didn't know where his daughter was. Well, Jim left his name and number, and as soon as... As soon as he did, he goes, oh, you're that goody two-shoes that ran her out of the office because she smokes. Jim knew, looking back over the situation, that it could have been a lot worse. She could have accused him of some immorality or of harassment of some sort, which is certainly and understandably very serious. There was some good that came out of all of that, though. Painful as it was, it allowed Jim to know the feeling of what scripture refers to as being falsely accused. You know the passage. It's right there in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says in Matthew 5 and verse 11, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. Jesus says you can learn something and there is rejoicing that can come even from that terrible situation. But it all begins with being falsely accused. Those were the Lord's words. Now what made the experience so difficult for Jim was that he could think of absolutely no reason in the world why Pam would hold any animosity toward him, let alone why she would concoct such a story about him. Except for the fact that perhaps Jim was a believer. And she wasn't, and she wanted to hurt him and to destroy his reputation that way. Well, it was, as you can imagine, terribly frustrating for months. Jim tried to reach her and resolve the issue, even wrote her a letter, never heard back from her. Jim said he, he felt a terrible need to vindicate himself, and he had to work hard at work not to talk about it all the time. He said, you know, I, I came to realize that if I talked about it too much, that, that my fellow workers would recognize that I was too ready to try to defend myself and I would appear guilty, but he was sure that his, his other friends thought that he was protesting too loudly. But to Jim, it, it was a big deal because he'll tell you to this day that his reputation is the most valuable thing that he possesses. I hope that's one of the takeaways from this lesson 
this morning. And, and I, I really do hope that you'll go back and read all of the first 12 verses of James chapter 3 and just allow that material to re-impress you with how important this subject is. And how of, of all the things that we do in our interaction with the world and with fellow Christians, that how we use our tongue is, according to Scripture, the most important. In fact, James makes that argument. He said, listen, if you can control the tongue, you can control any other part of your body. Everything else is, is easy, compared, comparatively speaking, to the control of your tongue. But, but you're going to be judged and assessed every day by people at work, even in your own family, by people that you're in the classroom with. In every context of life, people are going to be evaluating the validity and the credibility of your Christianity by how you talk, and especially by how you speak about other people. Because really, at its base, at its root, it is, is a love issue. If I, if I love people, other folks who, are, who have been created in the image of God, then I'm going to treat them accordingly. And I'm going to also apply Matthew seven twelve, the golden rule. I'm going to treat others and, and talk about others the way I want them to talk about me. I would want them, even if they've heard something, a rumor about me, I, I would want them to think the best about me until proven otherwise. You know what I'm talking about. And so all of this is, is a part of this whole package. And both experience and God's word teach us that the tongue can, can do so much evil. In fact, that is really the point of the two verses that were read a moment ago in James 3, 1 and 2. But let me end this lesson on a positive note. The tongue can also do so much good. I mean, think about all the positive ways, the constructive ways that our tongues can be used, that we can use this wonderful gift of communication in lifting other people up and not tearing them down. How else would we be able to tell people that we love that we love them if we were not able to communicate that to them? How else could we encourage one another and, and praise one another and exhort one another? Just as we talked about last Sunday morning from Hebrews chapter 10, 24, provoke one another unto love and to good works. You can't do that unless you actually communicate that message to the people that you love within the family of God. Now, certainly that can be done on paper. But let me tell you this, personally speaking, if my loved ones ever lost their ability to speak, I would most miss their familiar voices saying the things I love to hear. How about you? I mean, it's good to know that my wife loves me. But it's good to hear it, too. And to hear her tell me several times a day that she loves me. That's, that's one way, even within our marriages, that we can strengthen our marriages by reaffirming our love, de devotion, dedication, and appreciation for one another. I love speaking to and being spoken to by my wife, who I, I personally think has such a lovely speaking voice, but then again, I'm biased. I love hearing a grandchild say, I love you, Papa. Folks, let me tell you what, you cannot buy that with money. There's not enough money and gold in Fort Knox that can buy that kind of expression of love and devotion. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. And so that's my message to you today. I want you to always remember the potency of the tongue. Watch it, guard it, keep it, and use it for good. You might also be interested to know that in that last illustration, 
Due to Jim's good and consistent Christian influence, Bob eventually became a Christian. And that can happen too. You can become a Christian this morning without ever leaving this place if you make that decision right now to turn your back on sin, to confess Jesus as God's son and be baptized, immersed in water, to have his blood wash every one of your sins away. And you can leave this place a brand new creature in Christ and you can do it right now while we stand and while we sing.